Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... The referral hospital in the Solomon Islands really was in a terrible state. When the Ramsey mission arrived, it brought not just the forces to help re-establish government, but it brought catering and vehicles and maintenance and aircraft and health. And that's what we provided. Military-trained engineer turned businessman Glenn Keyes shies away from being described as a tactical medical commando. No, they're my words. But as a medical entrepreneur who delivers mobile outsourced healthcare into remote, dangerous, challenging, even war-torn regions around the world, that is effectively what his company, Aspen Medical, does. Glenn Keyes has built Canberra-based Aspen Medical from scratch to now deliver healthcare services, be they GP-staffed primary healthcare, hospitals, emergency, surgical, maternity, even dental units to some of the most difficult regions in the world, like war-torn Mosul in Iraq, East Timor, and West Africa to help fight the Ebola outbreak. In fact, Glen Keys is far from a gung-ho fly-in, fly-out style operator. With meticulous organisation and logistical skill, Aspen Medical provides as much or as little as their clients require in health services, equipment and highly trained medical clinicians. And that might be in a war zone, a natural disaster or humanitarian crisis anywhere across the globe, but it's also providing pop-up COVID-19 vaccination clinics to help disability services in Australia, relieving pressure on existing healthcare services. Glenn Keyes and Aspen Medical's journey is indeed a long way from his boyhood, living above his parents' shop in Newcastle in New South Wales, But that boyhood, watching his parents build their business, instilled in him an entrepreneurial spirit and an ability to bet big and back yourself. Hope you enjoy part one of my chat with Glenn Keyes. Glenn Keyes, welcome and thank you so much for joining me on Build It, Thou Come. Oh, well, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Now, you co-founded Aspen Medical, which specializes in delivering basically outsourced healthcare in remote or challenging or under-resourced regions, mainly, I guess, to relieve pressure on existing healthcare. I mean, you're kind of like tactical medical commercial commandos. Have I got that about right? Well, that sounds far more exciting than it really is. But our job is to provide as much or as little healthcare solution as a customer needs wherever we are needed. So sometimes it might be for a disaster or a humanitarian crisis, but other times it might be as part of a government program where they're trying to reduce a surgery waiting list or catch up on dental work. It might be helping stand up a new capability, or it may be helping an organization that's struggling to be able to get back up on their feet again. So I love the health commando line, but (laughs) but maybe not. 
Well, it's a very diverse organisation, but can you just paint me a snapshot picture of Aspen Medical right now? How many projects are you involved in? How many staff, whether they be permanent or part-time? How many countries are you deployed in? Sure. So we're about 7,500 people at the moment. We're in 18 countries around the world, and we'd probably be doing in the region of well over 100 different contracts and projects at the moment. Some of them are very long-term, have been running for over a decade, and some of them are as short as two weeks where we're running a quarantine program for a specific customer. And can you give us an idea of what sort of turnover you're doing? Look, we're obviously in a new financial year. Um, I think we're probably tracking towards four or five hundred million this year. Wow, that's extraordinary, Glenn. Let's talk about Aspen's beginnings. You started Aspen Medical with an old friend, a mate, as I understand it, in 2003 in your dining room. Where did the idea even come from? Look, it's a great question. I was working at that time for a large US defence contractor. I was visiting a really great personal friend in England. I was over there for work. We caught up for dinner literally the night before I flew out at Heathrow Airport. And at that time, he said, Tony Blair is going to completely revolutionise how healthcare is delivered in England. You know, everybody thinks about Tony Blair and Iraq and a whole range of things. But what they're really don't give him any credit for is what he was able to do with improving the health system. So I said, what's he going to do? And I don't think many people realise, but at that time, the NHS was the third largest employer in the world. Only the Chinese arm in the Indian railways was bigger than the NHS. They have 1.3 million employees. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of groupthink in England at that time. If you weren't in the NHS, you had been in the NHS. So even the private providers were all involved in that system. And Tony Blair wanted to change the model and he really wanted to dramatically reduce waiting lists. He wanted to keep the best of public health. He wanted to keep the best of public health delivery in the NHS, but he really wanted to bring in efficiencies and he wanted to bring things in that would improve the delivery of healthcare. And so a part of that was bringing in private providers who would help dramatically reduce waiting lists for surgery and a whole range of other procedures. And this good friend of mine said, that that's what he's going to do. And he saw an amazing opportunity to be in that sector. Let's just stay broad for the moment. I want to go back into the NHS and Tony Blair, but you must have known at the outset that it would be an expensive business to set up, hiring either expensive doctors and nurses, gathering mobile medical equipment, a lot of it very high tech, flying into difficult regions, flying groups of people into difficult regions, deploying far and wide around the globe and potentially dangerous and risky. So it is all of those things, but I don't think we really understood the scope of what we were embarking on at the start. We were starting a business from scratch and We were looking for each project as they came up. And only when that project came up, did we then look at, well, what are the requirements for staff costs, for equipment costs, for insurance costs, indemnities, which is not something you typically think about, but are massive in this industry. So we just really ate this elephant one bite at a time. Every time we do a project, we'd say, what do we need for this? How do we raise the money? What do we buy? How do we deal with the contractual terms? And then we'd deliver on that really well. And then we'd go to the next one. But you had trained as an engineer and then an aeronautical engineer. You had a previous career in the Australian Army. You 
weren't a medical doctor. And as far as I know, you hadn't actually run a business. What did you learn there in the Australian military that I guess really equipped you for this logistics and medical work? So I had been involved with two businesses. One of them was a startup from scratch when I left the military. And that was the business we built up over a number of years and sold to Raytheon. So I'd been really quite blessed. I'd had a great military career. I'd learned a lot about starting a business up from scratch. I'd then learned a lot about what's a large multinational business look like. So I'd seen either end of it before we started Aspen. Was that you were working for an American company after you left the army? No, I did a startup in Australia. They got sold to the large US defense company and then I worked for them. And then we started up Aspen Medical. But what I learned in the military was a few things. One is that you never know everything you need to know about a job. You need great people around you to deliver. You are not an island. And so I knew that if I was going to do this, we'd need great people that we could delegate to and trust. I also knew a lot about how to work at remote operations, work away from a headquarters and realize that you had to be able to identify what the risks were in a project, mitigate them, and then decide whether you could do it or not. But once you've mitigated those risks and you've identified that to the people that are running it, trust them to get on and get that job done. And then the final bit was a lot around logistics and project management. I brought all of those things, plus that business experience I learned, into Aspen Medical. But as an engineer in the ADF, did you learn how to be a logistics expert? Oh, absolutely. Because I trained as a mechanical engineer and I ran a workshop for vehicles and tanks and stuff. And so you've got all of the logistics, all of the people, all of the planning you have to do for that. And then when I did aeronautical engineering and flight test engineering, I ran aviation workshops. And so you have a lot of people, a lot of very expensive equipment operating at different areas. You also have to engage with pilots, which honestly are not very dissimilar to doctors. You know, they're highly skilled, they're trained. There's a lot of similarity. So I'd learnt a lot in the military. In actual fact, as an engineer, I'm seen as one of the logistics scores when you're in the army. So you learn a lot of those logistics skills. Glenn, when it came to this idea to help Prime Minister Tony Blair in the UK to try and revolutionise and cut hospital waiting times for orthopaedic surgery. How did you actually make that jump to get that contract? I mean, did you actually have any runs on the board? Did you have any resources in hand? Had you been into any other deployments or projects? So what we did was start like you do with a business, which is to start with a brochure and a business card and a lot of shoe leather. And we went around talking to people about what we could do, which was a different way of looking at things. Right. But it was basically, I mean, I don't wish to be rude, but it was basically talk at that time. You actually had no runs on the board, right? No, every business starts with no runs on the board. Of course. But we were selling something that others weren't. We were selling an outcome. So a lot of people will go to healthcare with inputs, like I can give you doctors or I can give you nurses or I can give you medical equipment. Then you'll have some people who say, I will give you an output, which is my GP will see 40 people a day. Or 
what we did, which was unusual, was say, we'll give you an outcome. You want to clear a waiting list? That's what we'll do. You need to clear two years worth of people off an orthopedic waiting list or an ophthalmic waiting list or something else. That's what we'll do. And we'll coordinate everything around that. The people, the logistics, the travel, the training, integration in with your hospitals, the policies, procedures, all of those elements that come into it, we'll do that. And at the end of it, you'll have what you really want which is a cleared waiting list rather than I've just given you seven doctors and you sort out how to do it. Yeah. So, Glenn, the scale-up of Aspen in the UK to do this, to deliver this NHS contract, the funding of it, the staffing of it, that must have been a huge learning curve and a bit of a struggle at the beginning? Oh, absolutely a struggle. So we were managing it from Australia. We were in seven sites in the north of England. It's quite funny because they said, oh, these sites are quite rural. One of them is 20 minutes outside Birmingham. And they're going, you know what, That's, that doesn't count as rural where I come from, so that'll be fine. <laughs> so we had to get a local project manager. We had to recruit staff, fly them over there. We had to organise accommodation. We we're interfacing in with the hospital. So lots and lots of nights, I would be on the phone all night talking to the hospitals, the staff, our project manager, the NHS coordinating things from here. And then I was backwards and forwards to England over the year, just keeping all the wheels turning. But the other point that you said was money as well. How did you fund it? We funded it out of sweat equity. So we chipped in the money to do it and to employ the staff and get it going until we could start to get the revenue off the contract that would then help act as the working capital to keep us going. Right. So you bootstrapped it right from the very beginning. You didn't borrow from friends or investors or the bank? No, no, no. The pair of us funded it ourselves. How did you do that? Well, money provided by shareholders. I didn't take a salary for weeks and months on end. We had one incident probably two years into another major contract we had at the same time in the Solomon Islands where our prime was late in paying us. So we needed $100,000 worth of salaries that week because we weren't going to get paid till the next week. So I came home, sat down with my wife. She pulled out the bank accounts. We emptied all of the accounts to be able to pay the salaries. And I said, right, we've got the $100,000. I'm okay. And my wife said, I've still got the kids, you know, Saber accounts from the school. Do we need those? And I said, no, hang on to those. We may need to eat. So That's uh, extraordinary. And we did have to borrow some money from the bank to buy a mobile surgery to ship up there to um, another project we did in the Pacific. And we had to put our house on the line for it. That's what covered the loan was that we stood the house on the loan and said, that's what we will guarantee to cover the debt. You bet your house, you bet big financially to get Aspen moving. Oh yeah, we bet the farm. We really backed ourselves to make it work. So in 2003, when you're sitting at your dining table with your friend, Andrew, was it always going to be a big vision for you for Aspen? No, I'd love to say it was. I'd love to say I had this amazing vision and we stepped up the path. No, it was what was in front of our nose. What were the opportunities? We were we were wanting to eat. So my job was to get out there, find a business opportunity, write the business development plan, win the contract, and then get on and deliver it. Every time we would win, then we'd go, right, we've got this. How can we leverage this into two, three, four other contracts? And then we'd grow the business from there. And then we'd get something new and we'd leverage it. But we had no idea we'd be where we are today. Yeah. Where do you think your entrepreneurial streak came from, Glenn? Uh, 
I, uh, my parents, I grew up with my parents running their own business. Mum and dad had shops in Newcastle. We lived above the shop. The shop was home. You know, I would get home from school. Mum and dad would be working in the shop downstairs. They had a lot of staff in the shop. So we got to know them. I got to see how they managed staff. I got to see how they would counter the opening of Toys R Us, which became a competitor, how they counted with things, how they worked together. So they had a toy store in Newcastle or toy stores? Yeah, it was wool, gift and toy stores. I don't know if you know Peyton's Wool. Yes, yes, of course. So mum and dad had Peyton's Wool and then they had buttons and zipped bias binding and then they had toys and then just gifts, you know, that would go as well. Yeah. But I still remember my, you talk about betting the farm. I still remember my mum and dad didn't often take holidays without us. We normally all went together, but they were having a holiday to Tasmania and the Peyton's factory was in Tasmania. So mum and dad had spoken to the traveller. We don't have travellers nowadays, I suppose. They were guys who drove around in a station wagon and showed you the various things that you could buy. And so they would order from him and three weeks later they'd arrive in. Anyway, they'd spoken to the patents traveller and they said they were going to Tasmania. He said, oh, I'll get you a tour of the factory. And they said, that'd be amazing. Anyway, they turn up and the CEO comes to meet them. And they said, oh, hi, Mr. and Mrs. Keys. I'll give you the tour of the factory. And then we headed upstairs to have lunch with the board. And my dad leaned across and said, they've mistaken us for someone else. We've got two (laughs) shops in Newcastle having lunch with the board. Anyway, they get up there and dad says, you know, look, I think you might have confused us with someone. And they said, no, 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 Ryan Lorna Keys in Mayfield? He said, yes. He said, no, no, you are one of only seven businesses in the whole of Australia that carry every bit of stock we make, one of everything that we make. So absolutely, we're aware of you. And they said, oh, okay. Anyway, they were chatting and my mum, who was, my mum was really the entrepreneurial person. She had great vision of what to do in a business, but, and dad sold, dad could sell ice to Eskimos. Mum was asking them what their challenges were. And back then when there was the wool board, you had to buy your percentage of the clip coming the next year, a year in advance. And they bought last year for that year. And it was a massive clip and they were overstocked with wool. And they said, we've got all this extra wool and we don't know what we're going to do, blah, blah, blah. And they just brought out um, 12-ply. And 12-ply, very thick. It's very easy to knit. And you can knit a whole front of a jumper in a night. With the big sticks and That's all it. that sort of thing. And mum had seen how much it was taking off. So mum said, um, how much have you got? And they said, 2,000 boxes. And a box is like you could climb into it, that size box. <laughs> and mum said, oh. how much if we bought the lot? Dad says jokes that he almost put the fork through the top of his mouth. And they said, oh. So by the end of lunch, mum had negotiated to buy all of the excess wool off patents and we sold it all. And so we built a big shed at the back of the the house upstairs, brought in all this extra wool and it sold like hotcakes. And we had a farm that they bought in the Hunter Valley. It's not massive, but there was always a big painting the old Peyton's posters of the jumper, the girl in the jumper. And there's one of her in a beautiful Peyton's jumper holding a boomerang by a tree. And that was always up. And people would say to dad, what, why is that there? And he goes, that wool bought this farm because we oh. sold all of that wool. So I still yeah. got it downstairs. It's a great story. So my entrepreneurial spirit, that, that ability to bet on yourself, that came from them. 
Yeah. Glenn, has your business model evolved? And can you just explain how you make money? Do you add a portion on top? Obviously, you cover all your costs and everything when you do a contract for someone and then you make some on top or how does it work? Yeah, no, we just margin it up like you would with anything else. We have a declared margin. With the vast majority of our customers, we're open book, so they know what we make. And we've got complete clarity and that margin will vary. If it's something you're passing through, it'll be lower. If it's a, it's a very difficult or, or scarce resource, it might be a bit higher. But that's the, the model is it's around that service. It's not always the case. We have had some, for example, the surgery in England, they wanted us to bill them per surgical case. So that's a little more complex, but we worked out how much we were going to charge them, you know, whether it was a knee reconstruction or a knee replacement or a arthroscopy, and we billed them per procedure. Some of the key projects and jobs you've done for various governments, but let's stick with the Australian government for the moment. I mean, one of the first you mentioned was in the Solomon Islands. Now, was that a war zone, a conflict zone at the beginning when you went? And how did that unfold for you? Look, absolutely. It was a, uh, it was a conflict zone. The Solomon Islands at that stage were in a terrible state. They really, the machinery of government had broken down. When was this? Uh, 2004. The machinery government had broken down. The rebels had uh, beheaded people, killed people. It was a really, really terrible situation. And Australia and New Zealand and many of the other Pacific Island countries stepped in to assist. And it was the Regional Assistance Mission to the Solomon Islands, or RAMSI, R-A-M-S-I. And initially, Defence went in, as they would, to go in and provide that health care. But it became pretty obvious that this was going to be a very long-term operation, multi-year. And that's not typically what Defence as health services would provide. They normally come in, they're there for a short period of time and go. So the decision had been made by the government that they would outsource health in that area. In what sense, health? Just briefly give us a picture of what you are providing. Yeah, it was fascinating because it was all health facilities. So it was primary care, so what you would get at a GP. It was emergency care, like you would get in an emergency room or an ED. Surgery, dental, pathology, radiology, ambulance, aeromedical evacuation, and pharmacy. And environmental health, which is fogging and spraying for mosquitoes and stuff. It was all the buildings. It was all the equipment. It was all the staff, the operating procedures, and all the relationships around aircraft and everything. It basically was a turnkey solution for healthcare provision for the Regional Assistance Mission to the Solomon Islands. Right. So it was for the civilian population as well as combatants? Oh, well, by then, you know, they weren't seen as combatants, but they were a military force. And it was whoever was involved in Ramsey Mission. So some were military, uh, many of them were multinational military, but there were civilians, DFAT, government that was being used to help reconstitute the machinery of government, families, children. We had uh, even down to babies as well. So we were doing everything from paediatric care all the way through. So they didn't have any of those services that were already existing? In the Solomon Islands? No, not at all. That The referral hospital in the Solomon Islands really was in a terrible state. And obviously, if the machinery of government's collapsed, so has all of those services. So when the, when the Ramsey mission arrived, it brought not just the forces to help re-establish government, but it brought catering and vehicles and maintenance and aircraft and health. And that's what we provided. 
Yeah, look, extraordinary. I mean, that was a major project. But then you were also in East Timor, I think, for a decade from 2006. And you helped evacuate Jose Ramos Horta after the assassination attempt on his life in East Timor in 2008. Yes, that was really incredible. So it was almost exactly the same style of service required in Timor for the the Timor mission. And I still remember I was in the office and we'd heard a call that Ramos Horta had been um, attacked during an attempted assassination attempt. He'd taken three high-powered bullets. He'd been rushed to our hospital in a just a, a van. He'd arrived. He was in a very, very uh, difficult state. There was blood everywhere. He was brought in. We operated on him for six hours. And in actual fact, he desperately needed blood because he'd lost so much blood. And we had only recently set up a blood bank, what they call a walking blood bank, which is where all of the Australian soldiers who were eligible had volunteered and we had tested their blood, cross-matched them. So we knew who they could donate blood for. And 12 units of Australian soldiers' blood was donated to support him on the operating table. And then as once we'd finished operating, removed the bullets, did some major uh, surgery on him. And then we flew him in our aircraft back to Darwin and took him around to Royal Darwin Hospital. When he returned, recovered back to Timor, he then presented the Timor Solidarity Medal to all of our staff who were involved. And they were the only civilians to ever be awarded that medal. It's meant to be reserved for military or police who've been involved in extra special operations. So a real honour to all of our staff who did an amazing job to save him. Yeah. Just in a place like Timor, and you were there for so long, were you bringing in Australian medics, doctors, nurses, expert trained people, or were you also training up East Timorese? So the purpose of the contract was to support the Australian mission that was up there. So they were all Australian clinicians. But one thing that we all do, no matter where we are in the world, is to engage locally with the community. So we'd engage We helped re-establish the equivalent of the AMA in Timor. We helped establish monthly training with doctors. So we would get them from the local hospital, the local GPs and our doctors would all get together and they would do training to raise skills and experience levels. We worked with local charities to help stand them up for the orphanages. There's an amazing American doctor who was there the whole time during the troubles, Dr. Dan, and we provided him a lot of medication when it would get toward being life expired. We would provide that to him. So rather than it being thrown out, he would use all of that before it expired. We would get donations of medical equipment that we would give to him. And when we would bring our biomechanical people up to check all of our equipment and service it, we would get them to stay on a few days extra, go to Dr. Dan, go to the local Timorese hospital and service all of their equipment free of charge. So we are always closely integrated in with the community. It's very important to us. Yeah. Back in Australia, you've also supported or provided health services for multinational oil and gas companies with offshoring and medical air evacuations. You've also been one of the largest health providers to defence in Australia and in their operational zones. Now, you won a huge contract in 2012, a $500 million contract to provide health care at several defence bases in Australia. Is that continuing? 
No, the contract went for four years and we did that for the four years and it was at every single defence base in Australia. So as far as we're aware, we're still the only single company in the world that's ever provided people on every single defence base in a country. So that's really exciting. I'd like to talk about Africa. You helped fight the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. The WHO, the WHO, asked Aspen to set up and run Ebola treatment units in Liberia. Tell us about that. So in actual fact, the WHO engaged us in Iraq, but in Africa, we were engaged initially by the US government, which was USAID, and that was in Liberia. They ran a worldwide tender. We teamed with a US company who provided what they call life support services. So they did the catering and the transport and accommodation, and we provided all the clinical services. And that was to four hospitals across Liberia that were being established. So we had won that and we had to get approval from the Australian government to be able to send people to Africa to support that operation. And at that time, there were some real concerns with the Australian government about people going to Africa and perhaps coming back with Ebola. So we worked very, very closely with the Australian government and the biosecurity people over how we would manage people when they came back. Interestingly enough, we had them go into quarantine to manage that to ensure that they weren't infectious for that period. And that worked very well. And then the Australian government was asked to help in Sierra Leone as part of the response that the British government was doing in Sierra Leone. The US government was originally had a colony in Liberia and the British government, Sierra Leone, had been a colony. And so that's why they had those respective areas of interest. And the Australian government came to us and said, are you working in there now? And we said, yes, we're there. We're setting up these four hospitals. And so the Australian government, I think quite fairly said, well, if The US government's run a worldwide tender and picked an Australian company to deliver their Ebola response. Maybe we should use an Australian company to do the Ebola response. And so we were then contracted by the Australian government to do the Ebola response in Sierra Leone. Did you take a lot of equipment from here? Are you setting up um, hospitals? You said the hospitals were there. Were they empty? Did they need to all be set up? And how did you staff it? In Liberia with the US hospitals, they set them up. And then we just had to come in and operate them. In Sierra Leone, we had to fit out everything. So the Australian government were given a site by the British government, and we had to establish a hospital, equip it, staff it, train, do everything, including all of the life support services, which we did. So uh, that, that was a challenge, and, and we had to get people to go. And it was an international workforce. A lot obviously came from Australia. So they were willing to go. You could get very highly trained doctors and nurses from Australia to go to these Ebola outbreak areas? Absolutely. So when the federal government prime minister actually announced it, we were ready to go. We had uh, phone lines, we had LinkedIn, Facebook all set up, ready to go. And when somebody asked who would go and he said it was Aspen Medical, literally the line started buzzing. I think in the first 48 hours, we had two and a half thousand people apply to go. And I think that speaks to the Australian commitment to compassion for others. So what we then did, though, was we realised that a lot of people back then didn't know a lot about pandemics, didn't know a lot about Ebola. So what we did was run a three-day training here in Canberra before anybody would go. 
and we ran them through where's Sierra Leone and Liberia, what's the security like, what's the culture like, what is Ebola, how will we treat it, how will we integrate in with others. And the reason we did that was we wanted to give people the opportunity after they'd heard all of that to go, maybe I don't want to go. And we thought that was important. What we didn't want to do was get people on a plane equipped. It's very difficult to get in. There are only two flights a week going into the country. Get them in and then see, you know, bodies stacked up in the streets and, you know, it was just dreadful. And then go, I can't do this. I want to go home. And then, you know, they've taken a leave of absence from their work. They're told their families they were going, how do they with dignity come home? So we wanted to give them that opportunity to learn everything and then make an informed decision. What's interesting, out of the several hundred people we put through that training course, only one person decided not to go. What actually happened that we hadn't expected was a lot of people said, now I understand it. I won't go for three weeks. I'll go for six or I'll come back and do a second rotation. So we had thought it would allow people to choose not to go. It actually allowed people to choose to stay longer because they understood more about the environment that they had before they started. Yeah. Glenn, you've also gone into very, very dangerous war zones, like setting up in the extraordinarily dangerous West Mosul in Iraq in 2014. Now, this is at the height, really, of the conflict there, and the danger posed from ISIS was extraordinary. How did that come about? Um, it was it was a really, really interesting and challenging, but incredibly fulfilling piece of work. The WHO had worked collaboratively with the United Nations to develop a hospital that had a maternity wing on one side and a general surgical facility on the other. And they had built these facilities that equipped them and they needed someone to come in and operate them. But they were very, very close to the front. And as you were talking about, it was very dangerous. ISIS were, were operating in Mosul. The um, the rules Geneva Convention were not being observed. And this facility was literally within 100 metres of where mortars could land from the fighting. They'd gone to all of the international NGOs to try to get people to staff it. And the vast majority of them were, were maxed out. They were, they were already supporting work in Iraq. They were in Syria. They were in Bangladesh. And they really had very little capacity left. And some of the others knew that this was so far forward that you would need security to check that the facility would be safe. And they didn't want to do that because ideologically, they, they didn't typically work with security. So WHO reached out to us. We had done work for the WHO before, and they said, are you able to do this mission? We didn't know if we could, to be honest. We needed to get people on the ground and do that. Within 36 hours, we had people on the ground doing a site survey of the facilities. They had to fly into Baghdad, uh, took them 15 hours through over 25 checkpoints to get up to the hospitals to check them out. And within three days, we developed a plan to show that we could do it. Within two weeks, we had a contract. And within two weeks, we had the hospitals, not just people there, we were open and taking our first casualties. That's extraordinary. So two weeks after contract signature. And we ended up with about seven facilities supporting the civilian casualties from the war in West Mosul. We treated in the 15 months we were there, 48,000 civilian casualties through the surgical facility, and we delivered 3,000 babies in that time. That is extraordinary, Glenn. Congratulations. What an amazing effort. 
Oh, and thank you. And and what all of our team was so proud of was that we didn't just get to the end of it and box up the hospitals and leave. We worked really closely with the WHO and the Iraqi Ministry of Health, and we handed the facilities over to the Iraqi Ministry of Health, fully operational, fully staffed with Iraqis, with all the policies and procedures operating. So we left the legacy. Yeah. So had you recruited Australian doctors and nurses to go over there, and then you also trained local Iraqis to take up where when you were going to leave off? Well, yes, we had some Australians and an international team as well. And we started with a core group of Iraqi clinicians. And then we grew that up to 100% until they were running the whole facility. And then we handed it over to the Ministry of Health. And I have to say the Iraqi clinicians, the standard of them was very high, really incredibly well-trained. But also they'd been operating in an environment where the power could go off any minute, that gases could run out, that people could attack the facility. So their ability to operate in a, in a combat zone was second to none. And when we worked with them and wrapped all of the operating procedures around them, we had an amazing facility that is still of benefit to the people of Iraq. Mm, Brilliant. Now, in November 2020, last year, you and another Australian company secured, again, a massive US $1 billion contract or deal to build and operate something like over 600 healthcare clinics and 23 hospitals across West Java in Indonesia. Did that come to fruition? Uh, It's working its way through now, actually. uh, We're working towards starting, breaking ground on the first hospital before the end of this calendar year. 23 hospitals, 650 primary care clinics. It is the largest single health infrastructure program in the history of the Southern Hemisphere. And it really is driven by the governor of West Java, who, who is really a man of vision with what he's trying to do to lift the health standards, which will lift the economic and education standards of the whole of West Java. Yeah. So you and one other Australian company are looking after that entire massive project. We are. The other company is called Doctor, run by Dr. Andrew Roachford. He had been heavily involved in Indonesia for a number of years. We knew of Dr. Roachford and we'd had some engagement with him in the past. And then as this project started to take shape, we were chatting about the size of it. We realized that this is something you didn't do on your own. You would have to do together. And so we've come together to form an entity that is driving that project. We have a local partner that gives us a lot of depth and understanding in West Java. And between the three of us, we're moving forward and it's very, very exciting. Oh, that's extraordinary. Look, how do you think your leadership style has changed through all these different highly risky, some very dangerous, but complex projects? How do you think your leadership style has changed? And what did you learn about yourself as the leader of this company, say in your first 10 years of running and growing Aspen? Look, I've learned an enormous amount and I think I still have lots to learn. And you learn from everyone around you. You learn from the receptionist and the EA through to the project manager, through to my CEO, through to our customers. I think some of the things I've learned is you need to listen to your team. We have an extraordinary team of people. The hours they put in, the effort they do to deliver care for people around Australia and around the world is exceptional. But when they tell you, this is a reach, I'm not sure we can do that. I'm worried about this you need to listen to them. You can't just 
proceed apace and hope that uh, confidence and bluster will get you across the line. And those people, sometimes you need to to get them to rein in because they're so excited about what they're delivering. We need to ask the hard questions or decide that maybe that is too far to go. But the single most important thing I've learned is to listen to those people and decide what not to do. And we get presented with an enormous number of opportunities. And there are times, and I would love to do them all, but there are times when I have to listen to the team and go, no, we're not going to bid this. And it hurts. It hurts when I do that, but it is the right thing to do. And I'm very, very lucky that all of them are willing to tell me that and are willing to come to me and say, in their own way, whether it's close the door and tell me or stand in a forum and tell me, but maybe we're overreaching and maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Glenn, maybe it happened when you were mortgaging your house and mortgaging the farm, as you said earlier. Maybe it happened at other times. But do you think failure or potentially falling over is close to the surface when you're an entrepreneur, when you're doing a startup business like yours? Oh, always. Absolutely. You know, you remember the, I love quotes, the the classic uh, Bob Tyre quote, bite off more than you can chew and chew like buggery. Well, that's often what every any entrepreneur has to do. I think it's understanding how far you can push that. You know, you've got to work out, you know, you are a danger to you, your staff, your shareholders and your customers if you go too far, if you don't know where the limits are. But know that limit and push all the way to the edge of that limit. But if you don't do that, you're just reckless and and that will put everybody at danger. But if you can push all the way to that edge and deliver on it, well, that's going to be successful. Glenn, I'd like to take a little break. There's so much more to talk about, but with the COVID pandemic and, and how you've supported Australia through that, I'd like to come back next week with part two of Glenn Keys. Thanks very much. That'd be great. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter, and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.